Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So I sort of kind of got asked out the other week, like on a date. The guy messaged, hey, maybe we could have a drink somewhere sometime. To which I wrote, Somewhere sounds great, because, like, really? I never heard from him again, though he follows me obsessively on the socials. So beyond my dating life, life has become super flaky, and I don't like it. People don't make plans anymore. They shoot a text, Sunday coffee, question mark. You reply, great, and try to name a time and a place, but they're having none of it, and don't reply. You get a, sorry, babe, day got away a few days later. We flick, we browse, we scroll Netflix for 30 minutes then give up and go to bed. We maybe drop in somewhere and we say whatevs instead of, okay, game on, count me in. We used to glorify busy. Now we glorify not caring enough to commit. I first began writing about this phenomenon in 2009. I was despairing the lack of people willing to stick their neck out and stand for something. I wrote about how I love weddings. There's a proper invite and we all RSVP solidly. We fire up and we whack it in the diary. We get dressed up and we don't drop in for a wedding. We're fully strapped in to the end. And you know what? They always turn out to be so nourishing. Sarah Wilson brings you wild ideas for a fired up life. It's the paradox of choice, right? A theory I talk about a lot. It's this idea that having lots of options feels like freedom, but actually it locks us into misery. And leaving options open without a commitment, well, that leaves us catatonic. But then I recently came across Pete Davis, a global democracy expert who takes this all to a new wild level. A few years back, Pete gave a graduation speech at Harvard calling for an end to always keeping your options open he made the case for committing. The speech was viewed more than 30 million times and led to a book called Dedicated, The Case for Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. And here's the thing. Pete argues that we need to relearn commitment if we want a better society. I shot Pete an invite with a time and date to join us for a chat. He replied with a definite yes. It was glorious. So here we are. Thank you for turning up. Thank you so much for having me. So glad to be here. I want to just kick off with something that I picked up from your book, and I didn't know this, the etiology of YOLO, Y-O-L-O, which 
people of your generation, you're a millennial, um, kind of use a fair bit in <laughs> on the interwebs. And it started out, I mean, the first, I think, instance of it being used was sometime in the early 90s. Can you explain where the origins of that word came about? Yeah, you know, so YOLO got very popular in the 2010s, but it was actually first used in the early 90s by the Grateful Dead drummer, Mickey Hart. And the way he first used it was that he, you know, took his Grateful Dead money and bought this ranch and he named it the YOLO Ranch uh, with his wife. And the reason he chose the name was the purchase was didn't really make financial sense for them as a couple at the time. They're like, oh, this is a little crazy. We shouldn't buy this kind of crazy ranch and turn it into this musical paradise. Um, But they said, hey, you only live once. Um, Let's buy the ranch. Um, And so it actually, why I thought this was such an interesting etymology is the first act of YOLO was someone deciding to put down roots to make a big, crazy decision that actually made them feel more connected with something. The ranch actually became this beautiful, rooted idea where people would come and have music. He still owns the ranch 25 years later. It's become this hub of this network around him and his family. And the way we use YOLO now is actually like quite the opposite. It's like none of our connections matter. Let's throw, um, you know, let's just live for tonight, not live for the next 25 years. And I just wanted to point that out because, you know, the message of the book was that actually the crazy wild thing to do is to put down roots for 25 years, not to kind of live just for today. Radical, especially coming from the Grateful Dead, because I used to live in Santa Cruz around that time. I was studying at the University of Santa Cruz. And of course, the Grateful Dead fans all based themselves there. And it was a pretty flaky culture, I've got to say. But it is radical. And we cut to 25 years later and we we glorify flaking over settling down, putting down roots creating an atmosphere or a place where we delve into meaning and delve into craft and perfecting things and so on. It's really interesting. I think, you know, we have very much downplayed this idea of commitment and dedication because we somehow think that it ties us down and that it denies us something. It denies us our freedom. And our culture today, I mean, particularly right now in this very minute, we're all obsessed by freedom. We're obsessed by sovereignty. COVID has, has actually highlighted this. It's actually brought it to the surface in bucket bucketfuls. So we've got this association that commitment means loss of freedom. And you actually argue otherwise, don't you? The thing I like to say when starting this you know, conversation about the flipping the way we think about commitment is, you know, the the idea of keeping our options open comes from an original good place. You know, it comes from caring about our future self. You know, there's this famous marshmallow test where you give a kid a marshmallow and you say, you can have two marshmallows if you don't eat it now. And the idea is that it's a good quality to develop in kids that don't take pleasure now so you can have double pleasure later or something. And what we're trying to teach them is care about your future self. So there are some good things about caring about your future self. But when we're keeping our options open, when we're being worried about tying down, what I'm saying is we're caring about our future self, but we're actually misguided in what our future self wants. We think our future self five years from now is going to be like, thank gosh that you decided to keep your options open because I have so many options now. Thank you, past self. But that's rarely what our future self thinks. What our future self thinks is, oh gosh, I'm in the exact same place I was five years ago. 
staring at infinite amount of options, wondering what I do. I've made no progress because my future self was thinking he was taking care of me. When our fat past future self is proud of our past self or thankful for our past self, it's often because we did the opposite. I'm so thankful that you started taking piano lessons because now I'm a maestro. I'm so thankful that you locked it in with that partner because now we're five years married and we really know each other. I'm so thankful you joined that group because even though it was awkward at the beginning as a rookie, now I show up at the meetings and everyone knows me and it's really easy. That is what our future self actually wants. So that's the kind of misguided uh, prediction that I'm trying to adjust with this book. Yeah, of course. And it's really interesting because if you project into your future a whole heap of more options, compounding options upon options that you're floating around in this kind of abyss of unanchored ideas and opportunities and potentials, it really is the definition of anxiety. Um, I think it was Kierkegaard who said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. It's this melange of of infinite options and that's what drives us absolutely insane and yet that's what we're setting ourselves up to do. Our culture has actually indoctrinated that into us. You've called it liquid modernity and I love that, that notion that we've melted down all the things that sort of are solid in our existence and we crave solidity but we melt them down. It is a really odd idea It's causing a lot of unhappiness and I think you identify that um, in some of your work. What pains you about a culture that melts down all that is solid? You know, the thing that pains me about it, um, and and liquid modernity, you know, was this, uh, I, I have to give credit where credit's due. It's by this wonderful Polish philosopher, Zygmunt Bauman. I had kind of happened upon this idea on an individual level, like this idea of infinite browsing mode. Our whole life has become the Netflix home screen where we're uh, choosing between a hundred different movies and not doing one. And I was trying to think of how that connected to society. And this idea of liquid modernity from Bauman took it to the societal level, which is the reason he calls it liquid is we all want to remain like liquid so that we can adapt to fit any future shape. No one wants to be tied down into a solid form. And what pains me about this is that, you know, we live in really dark times. Community is in decline. There's major political problems. Institutions are corrupted. Hopes feel like they're dashed. Hopes we might have had 10 years ago about how to solve some of our great problems. And everyone my age is looking for guidance because that's happening out there in society. And then that's also resulting in all this individual sense of kind of anxiety and meaninglessness and wondering of how to kind of hold on to anything in the flood. Um, And we're looking for guidance on what to do. And the guidance we keep getting you know, from, you know, higher up in education, we're always told the best thing you can do is keep your options open. That's like the mantra of our age. Keep your options open. I'm trying to keep my options open. I'm not going to get tied down to my high school sweetheart because I want to keep my options open in college. I'm not going to take the job I actually want. I want to get the job that'll help me keep options open for future jobs. I don't want to say what I actually believe because I want to keep my options open for, you know, you know, if someone disagrees with that. And, Again, this is kind of nice advice, you know, on the surface, because, you know, if everything's changing all the time, you might as well be open to changing with it. You don't want to get caught when the train's zagging this way and you zigged that way and you're not remaining liquid. But here's the thing. This is not enough. 
it's not enough on the outside. It is n- the people who keep their options open never end up solving the great problems of our time. They don't build community. They don't revive institutions. They don't move important causes forward. And then it's not enough on the inside. The people who keep their options open don't end up finding satisfaction or impact or joy. Who are the ones that do, that do make an impact and are also the same people that feel the most joy and serenity amidst the storm? It's the long haul heroes. It's the people who totally ignored that advice and decided to commit themselves to something for a long time. I want to get on to long haul heroes because you have a number of them. I think it's an obsession with long haul heroes, which is wonderful. Um, But as you were talking, I was thinking about a couple of things in terms of what people miss out on. And I have an image of people bobbing for apples, their heads underwater, they're frantically trying to bite into something that is not solid. It's floating away from them constantly. And it's this frantic need to to sink your teeth into something, yet we can't. That's how I feel a lot of us are living at the moment. And a couple of the things that struck me as you were just talking then, I mean, the dating realm, I think that's where a lot of people are experiencing this flaking, this keeping options open, what I call green grassing, this idea that there's greener grass elsewhere. So we'll we'll not actually set a time and a place for a date with either a friend or, you know, a lover. And that is really sad because, you know, we need stakes in the ground to be able to be our best selves. I also feel that it prevents us from going to our edge creatively because we never actually get to the point where we're sitting in discomfort long enough, you know, and creativity involves staying longer with a problem and being uncomfortable and you go further and further to the edge of what you're capable of. And a lot of people don't even get to experience that where the vibrancy is there and the air is fresh and and you get to see everything. And then finally, not sitting long enough means that often some of those creative projects don't come about. And I think it's Ira Glass from This American Life said that anything any good takes a long time. And I'm always remembering Leonard Cohen took five years to write Hallelujah. And I think a lot of people listening would describe it, would agree with me here. It is one of the best songs in history. It took five years and I think it took another 10 years before people came to appreciate it. It became a hit. I think Bruce Springsteen took six months to record Born to Run. Anything any good takes a long time and we deny ourselves that when we keep options open and value freedom over dedication. You know, the irony is this is a book about what you're missing out on if you never commit. You know, it's it's supposedly about, you know, you hear at the surface that it's about get over the fear of missing out. But I actually, you know, want to tell you, you should have a deeper fear of missing out on deeper things. And what you kind of touched on are the three gifts on the other ends of our fears of commitment. One of those gifts is purpose. You know, you... When you talk to long-haul heroes who've committed to something for a long time, they are on fire with purpose. They feel, as the Quakers say, that their life has something to say. Let your life speak is this uh, Quaker phrase I learned from Barker Palmer. Um, They feel like they really understand the message of what their life has to say and they're ready to have it speak. They 
have community. They really are surrounded by friends and comrades and colleagues and partners and even opponents, historic figures that they feel a kinship with, you know, descendants and future, you know, mentees that they feel a kinship with. All around them, relationships are made by their commitment. And finally, this thing about creativity, they feel depth. Instead of the world seeming like shallow and thin, it opens up to this giant kaleidoscope of meaning because the further you stay with something, the more detailed and rich the experience of life becomes. I always say, go to a baseball game and you go with a someone who's not a fan and you see someone throw a pitch and it's just a pitch. But you go with a super fan and they're like, oh, wow, that was the specific type of pitch. That was the same pitch that he threw four years ago in the division series. And so it's kind of a joke that he threw it because it's against the same batter. And he's kind of an elder, but the other batter is a young person. I'm like, oh my gosh, you just experienced that pitch as a total kaleidoscope of meaning when I just thought it was just a pitch. And that's what happens when you go deep on something. You have purpose, you have community, you have depth. And none of that will ever come if you're just gliding on the surface of browsing, looking for the best thing. It's so interesting. We admire people who commit and we love being around them. I I remember living in a sort of a coastal area a few years ago and each day I'd go down to the beach and there'd be an old guy on his hands and knees with a little bag and a butter knife. And he sat there pulling out exotic weeds from the lawn that was just near the beach. And I sat and spoke to him once and I said, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I just find this relaxing and I really like identifying all the different grass species. And he he explained it all to me. And I just had this absolute feeling of love and connection and adoration for humans. And we feel this quite often when we see people who have passions, have dedicated their life to a particular topic or maybe a range of topics. We also feel quite calm around people who are committed and have dedicated themselves to something and, you know, leaders, leaders in particular who are committed and sturdy, we crave it. So we also crave this kind of sturdiness for ourselves. You've described the opposite, this flakiness, as nobody wants to live in a hallway. Nothing happens in hallways, you know. We actually do want to secure ourselves in a room and close the door and make it our own and get to know the space to to root ourselves. So on the one hand, we admire people who commit. We crave it ourselves. And what I'm picking up from you is that there's this fear and it's a fear of regret that we're going to make the wrong decision when we commit. And this idea of FOMO, missing out when we put down roots. But you're saying there's a sort of a, another side. There's something on the other side when you overcome those fears. That's what you're saying, isn't it? it we, we need to push through that initial fear. And in fact, the reward on the other side is the absolute opposite of what we feared in the first place. Totally, yes. It's it's like, you know, this. some people have thought, oh, this is a book about not quitting. And not quitting is important, and there should be a book around how to not quit. But this book actually, you know, I didn't write this to because I thought so many people had made commitments and flaked out on them. It's actually that we're not even making commitments in the first place because of that fear. And, you know, these two ones you mentioned are, you know, classic ones we've heard about. Fear of regret is, you know, I, I'm going to wake up in 20 years and wish I'd done something different. Fear of missing out is I maybe I'm fine making this commitment, but I'm scared like I can't go to parties all the time if I make this commitment or I can't, you know, be with every type of partner if I'm only with this one partner or have every job if I'm only with this one job. And then there's also this third fear that I think is really prevalent in my generation, which I call the fear of association. 
it's this fear that committing to something will implicate or threaten kind of our identity or our reputation or our sense of control. I'm not the type of person that is with this type of person, but I don't want my friends to know that I've had the vulnerability to express passion about this cause. You know, oh gosh, if I really get to know all my neighbors, I got to deal with all their craziness, you know, like, and what I want to say is it's exactly like you said, it's this, there's this switch flip that can happen that kind of unlocks the key to each of these fears. So like we fear regret that we're never going to, you know, we're going to wake up in 20 years, regret what we chose. But you have this flip switch where you discover that as soon as you commit to something, we have what, you know, Harvard psychologists call a psychological immune system. Once you you know, psychologically fully commit to something. A bunch of things are working in your mind to justify your commitment. But that psychological immune system never clicks in unless you fully commit. But if you allow it to click in, you can't even imagine regretting what you chose because your whole sense of meaning becomes oriented around what you chose. You think that community and association is uncomfortable, but you get through the valley of community building. You get to know each other. You say, how many siblings do you have? You say, how's the weather? You ask all the annoying questions. You get to the other side of it, and suddenly you're super comfortable being in a room because it's all the you know all the people there and you have a shared history. And the missing out we talked about, you know, it's you fear missing out on the hot new thing. But what you discover is you're like, I missed out on a thousand hot new things, but none of them are worth a sliver of the long, deep thing. You know, the feeling of watching your kid turn five, the feeling of finishing the marathon, the feeling of your idea that was once on a random Google Doc being out there in a brick and mortar store. You laugh at the idea of like, oh gosh, I, you know, I missed, I missed out on some hot, goofy thing. Once you make those flip switches and see that purpose, community, and depth are on the other side, the fears start melting away. What about that fear of association, which you brought up, which I think is a really powerful point to make because it is, I think, particular to your generation, this fear that somehow you're going to be left with a label, you know, um, if you make a particular dedicated choice. What's the flip switch on that? How can you actually sell that into people yeah, listening? It's what I, I think it's a few things. One is it's a sense, it's, it gets at a really deep thing, which is how do we think about ourselves? When you're scared of that, you're thinking about yourself as independent and static, by which I mean I alone have a self that is predetermined. And my only job is to find it. That's like the phrase, find your, you know, go out and find yourself as if it's like hidden there in a rigid rock and you have to go find what's the shape of the rock. This is who I am. And then embody that. But, you know, I love this Bob Dylan line. He was once asked, oh, you know, you left Minnesota to go find yourself. And he looks at the interviewer for, you know, pauses for a second. And then he goes, nobody finds themselves. They make themselves. And what he's getting at is that yourself is not out there to be found. Yourself is made by your choices and commitments and relationships. And that latter part's really important. It's that yourself emerges through your relationships and commitments. There is no self out there. And that's what so many people feel. They're like, who am I when they haven't made any commitments? But as soon as they start making a commitment, you know, they say, I'm going to move to France and become a Frenchman. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get an architecture degree and become an architect. I'm going to marry this person and become their husband or their wife or whatever. Or, you know, I'm going to have a kid and become a parent. I'm going to start looking at the invasive species and become an ecologist. Out of these choices, out of these relationships and commitments, 
forms the self. And so what the flip switch is, is if you think about yourself as independent, static, and already there, all you're doing is defending yourself against the outside world. Only The outside world can only threaten it. If you think of yourself as existing in the outside world, in the choices to enter into relationships, what threatens yourself is hiding away from the outside world. What saves and discovers yourself is the ability to make the commitments because that's where it is that's where it is found in that it is built in those relationships. So that's the switch there. I don't know if you've read David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist. He's written a couple of books about this, about how young people are told they've got to go out and find who they are. And yet they're not given any guidance. It's a very lonely experience because again, it's bobbing for apples. Like, where do you even start? There's no solid guidance being given. And what's missing, I suppose, from the dialect around this is the process. And it's the moral struggle and the discomfort and the kind of awkwardness, all the things that we fear, it's that in itself, it's the struggling and wrestling with it that makes you the person that you become. You develop character through the wrestle, right? But if you're avoiding it by not you know, solidifying yourself down to one decision or committing or dedicating yourself to a process, you miss out on that struggle. And that is the path to becoming a wonderful human that you've always dreamed of being. Amen. I love that. I have a part of the book where I mentioned that every commitment is a little conversion. You know, some of them are big conversions, but even the tiny ones are a little conversion. And by conversion, I, you know, I'm analogizing to religious conversion. And there's all this writing throughout millennia of history on like what conversion is. And the old like alchemical way they used to talk about conversion is you're actually melted down. Your current self is melted down. You know, you're in the darkness. You discover who you actually should be. And then you're recongealed. And they say you re-enter the fire of struggle. And think of how like painful and intense that process is. You know, I used to be this. Now I, it's loosened its grip on me. I'm searching in the wilderness. I come back. And that's what every conversion is. You know, I used to be single. I used to think about myself as a single person who was in this family, but now I'm getting married and joining this new family. I used to think I was a storehouse of all these different professions I could be, but I'm joining a profession and I'm going through the gauntlet of being a rookie in the profession, which is painful. You know, you're surrounded by people who know their stuff and you don't know your stuff. Or, you know, classic struggle is like the cause. But even small things like moving to a new neighborhood and becoming part of it and really letting yourself be vulnerable to become part of it. It's all a little conversion. And those moments are what give life texture. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
I think the spiritual element to all of this is important. It doesn't necessarily have to come by a religion, but it can come through other kind of what I call moral umpires on the footy field of life. But we don't have those anymore. And that's why I think discussions like this are so important. And I'm really interested, actually, you define or you, you draw our attention to the definition of dedicate. And you, you point out that it has two meanings. The first is to make something holy. And the second is to stick at something for a long time. And you write in your book, I don't think this is a coincidence. We do something holy when we choose to commit to something. Can you explain that? I love that you're bringing up that quote while talking about kind of religion, because, you know, in some sense, this is, you know, it's not of a particular sect, but in some sense, this is kind of a partially a religious book in a sense of religion that I quote in the book, which is Alfred Nord North Whitehead's definition of religion, which is he says, um, he was this mathematician and philosopher, and he said, the essence of education is that it be religious. But what he meant by religious is that it inculcates duty and reverence, not that it's necessarily teaching you about a specific theology of God or salvation or something. Inculcates duty and reverence. And that gets down to the original meaning of the word religion. You know, the lig in religion is the same lig in ligament. It's something that binds you to something larger than yourself. And that's what commitment is. It's about voluntarily deciding to bind yourself to something outside of yourself that likely is bigger than yourself. The act of doing that, like the act of dedicating yourself, I, you know, I, I talk about those two definitions, is a holy act in the sense that it is working on the level of the existential. It's working on the level of the most foundational questions we ask about existence. It's almost an existentially courageous act to make a commitment because we have so few years on this earth. It's a mystery of what the meaning of our time on this earth is. And it's a mystery of what is the best use of our time. And to feel the, the certainty enough to make that courageous act, what you know Kierkegaard called a leap of faith, to throw down a few years for, on something, to take in our you know best case scenario, 110 years on this earth, absolute best case scenario, likely you know 75 years on this earth and say, I'm going to put at least 10 years into this or even the huge ones like marriage where you say, you know, I'm going to put 50 years into this or moving to a place and you know putting a down payment on a mortgage to say, I'm going to put 20 years in this place. Out of all the places you could be, it implicates those existential questions. That's why the fears are so big and that's why the joys are so big. And that's why the act is so transformative. And that's what and that's what I mean. And I wanted to give some people some encouragement because I think they feel the holy fears. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I talk about in the book, there's that famous quote, I, I know you've used it before of, what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life? You know, and it's, 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 it was originally said as an encouragement, like, oh, it's great. You know, there's a, there's, there's this amazing life. What are you going to do with it? But, you know, it's kind of a haunting question. <laughs> what are you going to do with your once one, you know, wild and precious life? And, and, I wanted to say, you know, the fears are kind of holy fears, but the act is a holy act and the joys on the other end are, uh, are, are holy joys. Yeah, that is a wonderful reminder. And as I say, these kinds of conversations are so important because they're, they're lacking. I noticed, and I don't know if you noticed the same thing, we cherry pick bits and pieces out of spiritual tradi traditions and religions and we cherry pick the very individualistic stuff 
the self-care and the candles and the, you know, looking after oneself, you know, and the bits that we've left behind are very, very much that notion of duty, rising to something bigger than ourselves, being of service. And it's horrible, isn't it, to witness because they're the things, they're the aspects of these traditions that delivered us the most peace, the most joy, the most elation, the most meaning. And, you know, it sounds like you're on a similar crusade to get a discussion around those characteristics of the human experience happening at a really deep level so that young people in particular can realise this stuff matters. Things taking a long time, being of service, helping somebody out, um, experiencing discomfort, um, facing your fears, having resilience, going to your edge. They're all the most fundamental, most wonderful aspects of life. And if I had to say, you know, if I all in the spirit of my book, not being a hypocrite, I'll say that the book falls into a category that I'm proud to be part of, um, you know, a tiny little contribute. The book's a tiny little contribution to the movement, which is the communitarian movement. There is a kind of a divide between individualism and communitarianism, the stuff that emphasizes us as isolated individuals and the stuff that emphasizes us as our interconnectedness and larger communities and social networks social webs. And the idea is not like one is better than the other. The idea is that there is balance that you need. You know, when you have too much community, you have the problems of conformity. And, you know, at the most extreme, you have the problems of fascism and, you know, the the need to protect individual rights and space and, you know, flourishing. But we've done so much work in calling attention the problems of community and not enough work calling attention to the problems of radical individualism um, and what you're missing out on if you swing the pendulum way too far to the individual side. And in some ways, the reason I care about dedication is dedication is the prerequisite for community. The most important virtue is the virtue of being able to dedicate ourselves. That is kind of the down payment you give it in exchange for community, which is I am willing to bind my future self. I think the the wildness of your idea is that this suggestion that we should be swinging the pendulum more to committing and committing to public interest as opposed to our individual concerns is really something we need to be doing to essentially save society, to save democracy. And you are somebody who studies in the area of community um, and what gets people engaged. And I'm just wondering if you can share um, what are some of the tricks that you've observed that can get people more enrolled? I'm a climate activist. A few people listening to this podcast are probably climate activists or involved in groups, maybe political groups. It's a very interesting time here in Australia at the moment. And it is an uphill battle at the moment to get people engaged in causes bigger than themselves. And at a time in history when we can see how vulnerable these institutions are, democracy, um, you know, old people, uh, young people's mental health, more, you know, broadly speaking, we need to make commitment sexy. <laughs> Have you come up with a formula yet? my take on how to grow civic organizations is that we're actually thinking about them in the wrong way and we're repeating the same strategy over and over and over again. And the strategy that that we're using over and over and over again, and it's not working enough, is we try to make the commitments, the public commitments, easier 
and more fun. Like we try to compete with Netflix and we try to compete with the other things you could be doing. And we say, you know, it's really fun to participate in the civic cause. And don't worry, all you got to do is do this one thing. You don't have to do anything Click else. one button. Click one button and that's all you got to do. And it's cool. And it's, um, and it's as sparkly as everything else. And then what you're doing is you're putting the commitment into the category of like kind of shallow entertainment. And we're never going to be as good at shallow entertainment as the shallow entertainers. You know, Netflix is better than going to the first meeting, you know, of, of a thing because Netflix is perfectly designed to give you the best hour of fun. And the first meeting is a lot of awkwardness and, you know, being asked to do stuff and, you know, boredom and tedium and not knowing anyone and discomfort. So what I'd say is we need to enter another category. And the way to do this is actually the exact opposite, which is to say, you know, the commitment is hard. Sometimes it's not going to be fun, um, but it's very important. And, um, and if you enter into a relationship with this commitment, we are going to guarantee you purpose and we're going to guarantee you community and we're going to guarantee you depth, these deeper things. It's not, we're not going to guarantee you sparkle fun at the first meeting, but if you get here, we're going to guarantee you you're going to be doing very important stuff and you're going to have a bunch of comrades that are going to stick behind you and have solidarity with you as you have solidarity with them, marching arm in arm in the cause. And you're going to grow and learn so much that the whole world's going to open up to you because you're going to be part of this epic mythology of this thing. And what happens when you say, this is actually going to be harder and bigger and more important and ask a lot of you, instead of asking a little of you, people start going wild. And I have examples of this. You know, there are studies of civic groups where they try to go easier and more fun and they die out. Whereas the ones that said, actually, we're going to make you have to learn, you know, all of our weird traditions to get started. Or immediately when you join, we're going to say, I need you to be the leader of this thing. And we need you to show up next Thursday because you're in charge of bringing the food or something. Um, those start skyrocketing. Why? Because the fun, you never beat out other fun and fun fades. But on the other side, the, you know, suddenly they start feeling really purposeful. They start feeling community. They start feeling depth. They start feeling like their life has meaning. They are given things that are missing in their life right now. And it becomes a bigger part of their identity and has their talent. You know, I, I interviewed a long haul hero that I loved and I said, why do you do this? And he goes, it has its talons in me. And that's what's something that kind of grows its roots in you allows it to do. Um, and that's what I would challenge civic groups to do. Yeah. Do you find that people's eyes actually do light up when you talk about purpose and depth? Is that something that people are just craving? I think when you hit it head on, you know, you might sound a little cringe by hitting it head on and say, I, you know, this organization is going to give you purpose and community and depth. But, you know, it's like the famous St. Francis uh, phrase, uh, preach the gospel if necessary, use words. By which I mean, when you show people, wow, they always talk in civic organizing about small wins. Wow, I just went to the first meeting of this group and they were celebrating someone at the meeting for giving a great speech last week and helping get the cause on the agenda of this committee. Or I noticed that all of them were all so friendly to each other and caring for each other. Or I noticed that, oh my gosh, there was this person who gave, came up and they, they knew everything about the climate cause and they knew all about how solar energy worked and how it was different than wind energy. Wow, it's so smart. And then you start seeing at that meeting, 
you start seeing the purpose and seeing the community show, don't tell. You start seeing the depth and that's when eyes light up. And you can tell that this is true by what people talk about as remarkable in their life. Like what's a remarkable person you run into or what was a remarkable meeting you had or what was a remarkable thing you seen that inspired you, that filled you up? Um, they'll usually talk about the people that felt alive with purpose, felt alive with community, felt alive with depth. I often say this when I'm thinking about people who are frustrated trying to get, you know, people enrolled in a cause. We often have to make the new way of being, the new way of doing something more charming than the status quo. And on the one hand, it can be really hard when you're just kind of toiling away, you know, at your interest or your cause, your public interest, to then actually look like you're really chirpy about it. But I would argue it it makes the job that much more easy because you know, there's this almost obligation, this responsibility to enjoy it, to enjoy it so that you can show other people how charming this way of living can be. Because presumably you do believe it's a better way of living. So start living it now. Um, That's an adage that I definitely try to work to. But I'm just wondering, you talk about um, the fact that the way we go about all of this, it's got to be voluntary commitment. So we, we it, this is not about being bound against your will as we were, you know, decades, centuries ago. This is about voluntarily stepping forward, relinquishing some of these nebulous, flaky freedoms and laying down roots somewhere. How do you go about that? What kind of changes have you made to your life How have you voluntarily committed? I like talking about this and I I will not uh, skirt the the personal question. I will get to it, but I'll kind of set it up with (laughs) different, you know, I often like talking about the particulars of different types of commitments. And I can talk about some in my own life as examples. The reason I like talking about the particulars of the commitment is what I call the name every white thing in your refrigerator problem, which is if you tell someone name items in your refrigerator, they're like, oh, uh, 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 I don't know. But if you start saying name a white thing in your refrigerator, then they're like milk, eggs, yogurt, you know, the, giving giving the more specific thing can help people think about commitments in their lives. So I talk about six commitments Causes, places, projects, institutions, crafts, and people. And the corresponding names of the committers for that, you know, the people who commit to causes are citizens, people who push the world in a direction. The people who commit to places are patriots, not patriots in the like flag waving, Trump sense, you know, <laughs> bombs dropping type. Yes, but patriots in the local patriot sense. They love the place and the people that inhabit them. The people who committed to projects are builders or creators. The people who are committed to institutions are stewards, you know, maintaining an institution. Crafts are artisans. And I love the word for you know, I found for people, which is companions, it, you know, the original root is to have bread with, compan, and, uh, you know, people who sit and accompany someone in the, in the, in the problems of life. And, you know, I try to hit all these points. You don't have to hit all, the, you know, all the points. Some people have kind of lumpiness in their commitments because they have to go really hardcore on one. I'm able to have a little bit of well-roundedness in my commitments. So my daily life is in politics. I work on deepening democracy in America and solidarity in America. That's my cause I fight for. I'm a, a man of the left and um, that's that's my political world I, I fight for uh, on policy level. Thank you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, um, and, you know, that's kind of relevant to the book because I feel a lot of people talking about commitment might be from the other side and I kind of wanted to save the virtue so that it can be for both sides, not just on their side, which comes 
with some baggage others like myself wouldn't be happy with. Places I I moved back to my hometown um, after after school, put down roots here and for good, and I'm trying to get more involved in my town. I'm trying to participate in some crafts like um, playing guitar and things like that. But you know, this gets a good point at um, something that's a real nuance, which is. When I'm saying commitment to craft, I'm not necessarily meaning privately committing to the craft. I mean participating in a craft practice, like the community of the craft. When people say like that is the way that like MMA is, it has a culture around it, or that's the way hip hop is, it has a culture around it. You know, that's the bigger part. And one of my things I'm hoping after the pandemic over is to be part of the larger kind of Americana music community. And then companions, I, you know, I have the total kind of uh, argument against hypocrisy here, which is during the course of giving the speech and writing this book, I got married and am having a kid in a month. Um, oh. So I'm ultimate, I'm doing the ultimate two commitments one can have uh, in terms of companionship of becoming a husband and a parent. That experience has taught me a lot. Um, the best way to learn about commitment is diving into it. And um, I've learned a lot more than anything I could ever write um, in this book. You walk your message. I like that. I like that. I'm sure the book helped with making that decision and and uh, and selling the charm of marriage and, and fatherhood. Well, look, that's a lovely night, note to end on. And this is a question I ask a number of guests who come on to, onto the podcast. If we were to lose it all, what is left? What matters to you as a human on this planet? I love that question. I took a long time over the last uh, kind of 10 years trying to get really deep and simple on at least my kind of public life. Um, you know, private life is a is a hundred year journey, but, you know, <laughs> public life is, I was like, okay, what do I want to fight for in my work? And I came to this conclusion that the two things I care deeply about are deepening democracy and deepening solidarity. And um, there's going to be a deeper thing I'm going to say about this, but this is kind of the setup, which is democracy is the project of expanding more power to more people in more ways, everyone co-creating our shared world. And solidarity is the project of building more relationships between more people in more ways, having um, more people see each other's uh, lives as part of their own. And at the center of these two kind of highfalutin words, you know, democracy and solidarity are two kind of fundamental forces in existence that I care deeply about. And I think it's really the truth of why I care about these more highfalutin things. At the center of democracy is imagination, creativity, the ability to think up an idea about how things could be different and the belief that everyone has that ability. And so at the heart of it is inside of each of us, our lives, inside of each of our souls is this person who can create, a person who has a thought about that's not just what the world imprinted on them, but something that could be different and that that thought is worth listening to. And then at the center, slightly more important, but um, up there as the twin, uh, at the center of solidarity is love, our thing calling us to be connected to each other. I, I'm not going to be able to say anything profound about love. You, you, We all have our own ways. A lot of people have, you can, a lot of books out there on what that means, but when it's all stripped away, I think those are the two things that rejuvenate and rebuild the world. I almost feel I have to wrap all of that up with an amen to Pete. Creativity and love as a basis for what we do with a life strikes me as dead solid. He brings a smile to my inner being. And fighting for community structures that support creativity and love is noble. 
or as he says, holy. We do something holy when we choose to commit to something. Word. This is a bit of a theme in this podcast, I think, exploring the worth of caring, of giving a shit. To swing that pendulum back from rampant individualism to a greater good. Some of the super solid stuff Pete covers need to be normalised, taught again, drummed into us so we quit fearing commitment. A few of the grabs that I took away. So the first is, anything any good takes a long time. I've always loved that one. The second, that sitting in discomfort bears the best fruits. Like it's the wrestling with fear and annoyance that gets us to where we want to be. Another one, that placing a stake in the ground and saying, this is what I'm committing to. This is what I'm associated with. I'm a carer. I'm an activist. I'm political. I give a shit. Actually lands you at the meaningful life we are meant to be finding out there. Not having stacks of options. And the double whammy is this, firing up and getting dedicated sees us save democracy and decency and humanity. Finally, as someone who has made a career of trying to get people fired up to difficult causes, I love that his research shows that the more work required to sign up to a community cause, the more likely we'll really stick with it and affect the awesome change we all yearn. This actually feels counterintuitive, right? We are told the opposite, that, hey, whatevs, let's just care less. But I'm so happy to hear from someone that we actually do want to care more. We just need to be shown the charm of committing. And just one thing, Pete actually mentions the Harvard study that points to this idea that the more we sign up to a commitment, the more it becomes the right idea. I know the study. Mr. Happiness Guru, Daniel Gilbert, was behind it, and it showed we have a psychological immune system. When we make the jump into a new way of living, our minds start rewiring our narrative to say, this is my new life now. Let's feel good about it. It's a cognitive dissonance that's a wonderful, positive survival mechanism. Gilbert shows, though, that if a commitment is a kind of sort of flaky one, the psychological immune system doesn't kick in, which I kind of like. Until next time, stay wild. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.